0: would you turn with me this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 17? And if you need a Bible or if you'd like a journal, uh, we've got a bunch of Gospel of John journals over here on our resource table. Feel free to hop up and grab one or grab a Bible over there um, and follow along with us this morning. John 17, uh, we're going to read the first five verses of this chapter this morning. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence, your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. The word of the Lord. Uh, 450 years ago, in November of 1572, John Knox, who was the founder of the Presbyterian Church in Scotland, passed away. And uh, Knox had become a priest uh, in the Church of England at a tumultuous time in Church history. King Henry VIII, who was King of England, uh, had inadvertently kick-started the Protestant Reformation in England by removing uh, the English Church from the Roman Catholic Church and effectively setting up his own Church of England. And he did that primarily because the Pope wouldn't allow him to divorce his wife. Um, And while his actions were arguably more selfish than they were religious, it did spark a sort of revival in the English church. And within just a few years, uh, the church would have uh, produced two things that endure to this very day. Uh, One was the King James Bible, and the other was uh, known and is known as the Book of Common Prayer. The King James Bible was the first Bible uh, to be translated into English that was Widely available to people, and the Book of Common Prayer was essentially a guide to worship, both personal worship and worship within the church that became available. Uh, and it, it actually was produced even before the King James Bible came out. Um, so this is this is just a like crazy time in church history uh, where all kinds of things are happening. Um, and in the midst of this revolution, Henry the Eighth dies. His son comes to the throne for a very brief period of time, and then his daughter comes to the throne, and his daughter uh, was Mary, who is historically often known as Bloody Mary. And she was Bloody Mary because uh, she tried to return the church back to the Roman Catholic Church. So Henry VIII had taken it out of the Catholic Church. Mary said, no, we're going back to the Catholic Church. And that created all kinds of turmoil, and uh, she had numerous priests murdered, Protestant priests murdered murdered, burned at the stake, things like that. A lot of people fled England at this point in time, uh, including John Knox. And uh, John Knox leaves England, he goes to Geneva in Switzerland, and he falls under the teaching of John Calvin, who was one of the primary architects of the Protestant Reformation. Um, And so uh, Knox sits sits under Calvin for a while, and then ultimately he goes back to his home country of Scotland uh, and begins to uh, reform the church in Scotland. And uh, he was such a significant figure in the church in Scotland that even when Mary, Bloody Mary, was still queen, uh, she commented once, quote, of John Knox, I fear his prayers more than I do the armies of my enemies. That's how significant of a figure he was. Knox was known for his prayer life. Um, you can even pick up books today of his collected prayers um, and read through them. He was a, an ardent and fervent prayer. But when he was on his deathbed, he called to his wife and he said, go read, he asked her to get a Bible, and he said, go read where I cast my first anchor. And so she turned to the 17th chapter of John and read it. And one account says that in that moment, as she read this chapter of John, he seemed to forget his weakness And he began to pray, interceding earnestly for his fellow men. He prayed for the ungodly who had thus far rejected the gospel. He pleaded on behalf of people who had been recently converted. And he requested protection for the Lord's servants, many of whom were seeking persecution. And as Knox prayed, his spirit went home to be with the Lord. Today... As we think about that, we encounter a central passage of scripture for the church over the last 2000 years, a passage that since at least the late 1500s, at least the time of John Knox has been known as Jesus's quote high priestly prayer, the longest recorded prayer of Christ that we have. One of the things that's interesting about Jesus is that in all the gospel accounts Jesus seemingly prays often, but very rarely do we give get the words that Jesus actually said. And so this is a really significant chapter, if anything, for that reason. We get what Jesus' actual words were in prayer. So to say that this is important would be an understatement. Um, It's not only a window into the prayer life of Jesus, it is also rich with theology and yet enigmatic at times. One author writes, it takes only 3 minutes and 30 seconds to read it aloud, the High Priestly Prayer, but it will take an eternity for us to fully understand it. many Christians throughout the centuries, like John Knox, have looked to it in much the same way as the Lord's Prayer, a prayer that we can look to as almost a model in our own prayer lives. So today, we are going to begin walking through uh, the first part of this prayer. Uh, We're going to take about three weeks to walk through the whole thing. Um, But we're going to walk through the first part with an eye not only for what Christ actually says, but also to the way that the prayer plays an important role in the scheme of John's gospel. As well, And there are three basic movements in this prayer. First, Jesus prays for himself, which is what we're looking at today. And then Jesus prays for his disciples. And then finally, Jesus prays for the church. Or another way to put that is Jesus prays for all those who will one day come to know him, including those of us in this room who are followers of Jesus. So let's look at verse 1, and let's start there at the beginning. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. So this prayer comes on the heels of what we just wrapped up this past week that section John 14 through John 16 which is sometimes known as the upper room di- discourse Jesus's final like teaching to his disciples here in John's gospel and uh, this prayer seems to not be some dramatic turn in thinking for Jesus it's not like Jesus finishes this teaching and then all of a sudden he just goes in a completely different direction with what he's praying no 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 This prayer comes right out of what Jesus has been teaching in the preceding three chapters. And in many ways, in order for us to understand what this prayer is all about, we we need to understand the previous three chapters. But really, we kind of need to understand everything that has led up to this point in John's gospel, Um, because in some ways, this prayer is a summation of everything that has happened up to this point. In John's gospel but the actual words like the very words at the end of chapter 16 uh, that Jesus said right before he begins this prayer is this I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace in the world you will have tribulation but take heart I have overcome the world What we said last week is that those are words of comfort to his disciples who don't fully understand what's going on. And what we said last week also was that Jesus had not shared all details with them, because on some level, they would have been incapable incapable of fully, like, understanding and synthesizing all the details. Like, they, they really couldn't grasp it all. Jesus has given them the high points, which are, things are going to get bad, and then things are going to be good again. Like, you are about to enter into a really difficult situation. You are going to have tribulation in this world, but don't worry, I have overcome the world, he says those words, he launches into this prayer. So uh, it's a very appropriate thing that right after that statement, Jesus would turn to prayer, right? In, in light of what is to come, what else can we do but go to the Father in prayer, Um, in particular though, I mentioned that we, we kind of broaden our our view a little bit. This prayer is not just about what's happening in this, in this particular moment in John. It's also all about everything that has happened up until this point, uh, in the gospel. And in particular, there's a direct connection to John's prologue here in chapter one. Chapter one is the prologue of the gospel of John. So here in chapter 17 is a direct connection. And we're going to look at that in just a moment. Before we do that, though, notice Jesus's posture. Did you notice what it says about how Jesus prayed? He, he lifted his eyes to heaven. I mean, and I think you're, you're literally talking about something like this. He lifts his eyes to the heavens and he begins speaking aloud. And I was thinking about this this week, and it is literally the opposite of how we pray. Isn't that fascinating? What do we do when we pray? We look at the ground and we close our eyes. And yet, on more than one occasion, the model that Jesus gives us for posture in prayer is this model of looking to the heavens. And as he prays, he speaks aloud. Now, at times we get uh, from Jesus a very clear understanding that he is uh, voicing things aloud for the good of people around him. Yes, he is praying. He is speaking with the father. But he also wants to other people to hear what he's saying. Uh, But I was just so struck this week by the fact that that we don't do this, do we? We we do kind of the opposite of this when we pray in the feeding of the five thousand Uh, Earlier uh, in John and and in uh, the Synoptic Gospels, um, he lifts his eyes to the heavens and he blesses this uh, paltry supply of food that he has. And then suddenly it feeds 5,000 people. I also couldn't help but th- think but, uh, about like Psalm 121. Uh, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. What are we doing when we are praying if we are not looking to our help, to, to like the source of our provision and, and like recognizing that everything we have, everything that we are comes from the Lord. That's what the doxology is all about by the way, what we just sang, right? Um, uh, Traditionally, people will, will kind of take this posture when they sing the doxology. It's this posture of open hands because we're praising God from whom all blessings flow. Right? And like everything we have comes from him. Ultimately, there is nothing that you have somehow acquired for yourself outside of his provision or outside of his purview. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. So Jesus looks to the heavens and speaks, Father This is the extent of Jesus praying for himself in this prayer. Father, glorify me so that I may glorify you. In other words, Father, honor me so that I may honor you. And again, I mentioned this a second ago, this is directly connected to the prologue, chapter one of John, where John said in the very beginning as he's sort of setting up this this whole book, setting the stage, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his, what? His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So, so John, as he is beginning this gospel, he's, he's giving you like a taste of what is to come. Because he's, he's basically saying at the beginning, if you're wondering as you uh, hear this story or as you read through this story, if you're wondering if this is really the one, if this is really the son, the Messiah, the word become flesh, then I'm here to tell you we have seen it. We have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He begins there by saying, I'm not going to keep you in suspense. I'm telling you who this is. He is glorified, and we are witnesses to his glory. More on that in a minute. A few other key things Jesus says here. One is that the hour has come. And we've talked about this a good bit in previous weeks, but Jesus has been talking about his, quote, hour throughout this entire book, and his hour is best understood as the time of his crucifixion and resurrection. In the Greek, there are a few words for time. One is chronos, uh, which refers to like linear time. Think chronological time. The other word is kairos, uh, which refers more to like a moment in time. And, And Jesus here is referring more to kairos than chronos. He's not necessarily saying, well, it's it's Friday, or it's three o'clock, like he's saying, no, 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 the moment has arrived. The hour has come. The time has come. The moment for which I've come has now arrived. If you remember last week, his metaphor was that of a pregnancy. And in a pregnancy, there's all this waiting. Um, We've, we've done a few natural births uh, at our house. And it's just kind of like, when's it going to happen? You know, it's like, you, you know, you know, generally like when it's going to happen, but, but, but the actual day, the actual hour, you don't know until the moment has arrived. Right, that, That's part of what Jesus is getting at in that metaphor. In pregnancy, there is pain, there is discomfort, uh, there's all of this waiting. There's maybe anxiety in the waiting. When you know the moment has come, there is, uh, I think, some relief, but there's also some anxiety about how is this going to go. But his point is, but once you're on the other side of it, Once you're on the other side of the pain and the struggle and the anguish, the joy of having a baby in your arms makes you forget how challenging everything was leading up to that point. Clearly, in our family, we forget that quicker than others, right? Um, Some of you, some of you haven't forgotten it. Second, Jesus also tells us that God has given him authority over all flesh. So the hour has come, but then also God has given Jesus authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, people take these words in a number of different directions, uh, and without getting into the weeds here, hopefully, I, I, I do want to point out a few things. First, when Jesus refers to those whom God has given him, he seems to be referring to the disciples, I don't necessarily think that Jesus only means the twelve, or at this point the eleven. I think he also means, like, the larger community of followers that are with him at this point in time. Think about the women who will meet the resurrected Christ at the tomb. but I don't think here that he's talking about all believers throughout the centuries, um, even though it would not be untrue to say that Christ has authority to give eternal life to all whom God has given him throughout the centuries. I, I think that in this moment, what he means is the disciples, like his followers and in the, in the community that is around him at this moment. Um, and we'll get into that a little bit more next week because next week, Jesus will pray for them specifically. He'll pray for the disciples specifically, but suffice to say, Jesus, Jesus's words indicate that those whom God has given him are not just random people who have like just so happened through their own good decisions to become followers of him who just kind of like stumbled into his ministry of their own volition. No, what the words of John seem to be suggesting here and throughout this whole book, honestly, is that God in his sovereignty has been intimately involved in giving people to Christ. And this is a position that John holds, as I said, throughout, go back to chapter six. And again, this is something that Jesus will speak of more next week when he prays specifically for those whom God has given him. So so hold that thought a little bit. But also let me point out that Jesus's words here would go against any notions that Christ makes universalistic claims. Um, Or claims that all people will somehow be saved. It seems very clear here that there is a group whom God has given to Christ, whom he has manifested his glory to and the word of God to and who have believed in him and have thus received eternal life. And then third, it is this eternal life that he speaks of in verse three when he says this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So Jesus says that eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus Christ. And the operative word there is know, which basically means, in the Greek, intimate knowledge. For example, uh, when the angel comes to Mary... And tells Mary, you're going to conceive a child. You're going to call him Jesus. Tells her everything that's going to transpire. Our translations uh, record Mary saying something to the angel like, how is this going to be for I am a virgin? But what Mary literally says in the Greek is, how is this going to be for I have never known a man? It's the exact same word that's being used here. It is not a word that means sex, necessarily. It's a word that means intimate knowledge. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. For those of us who grew up in the evangelical church... um, You've probably undoubtedly heard many times in your life that Jesus wants to be your, quote, personal Lord and Savior, which to me is kind of a weird thing to say. Uh, it's not necessarily, uh, biblical language, and to be honest with you, it smacks to me of, like, Western, uh, individualism and, like, Western self-centeredness, this notion that Jesus wants to be your personal Savior as if you are all that matters. Um, it's very modern language. That is not the way that the church has talked throughout most church history. Um, but there is a kernel of truth in such a statement. And uh, despite the ways maybe it's been twisted over the years, and that kernel of truth is rooted here in John 17, God wants to be intimately known by you personally. But as Jesus has made clear here in John, he is the only way that that can happen. You cannot know God outside of Christ. You cannot know God outside of him. It is impossible without him and your belief in him as the son. John has talked about belief over and over and over and over again throughout this gospel. In other words, and this may sound strange to you, I don't know, but you cannot know God through the church alone. You cannot know God through the church alone. You cannot know him through church rituals if you do not first believe in Christ. You've been baptized, you've been in church your whole life, you've taken part in the sacraments, you cried at youth camp, you've prayed, right, you've done all these things. But at no point has scripture said that anything of that nature will bring you into saving, intimate knowledge of God apart from belief in Christ himself. Participating in the church is wonderful, but at best, the church alone will give you a sense that something else is going on and will hopefully point you to Christ. But any knowledge that you gain outside of belief in Jesus will inevitably be a more academic form of knowledge, not the intimate knowledge that a son or daughter has for his or her father. That's the kind of knowledge that Jesus is talking about here. Not do you know things about him, but do you know him? And that only comes through believing in Christ. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. No one comes to the father except through him. You could say no one knows the father except through him. In fact, Paul basically says in 1 Corinthians 2 that if you don't know Christ, well, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you can't understand the Word of God because the Word of God is spiritually discerned, not academically discerned, spiritually discerned emphasis on the Spirit. Hence what we read earlier that this is folly to those who are perishing. Paul goes on to say that it is through this intimate knowledge that we ultimately come to have the mind of Christ, right? Paul talks about being transformed by the renewal of our mind, not being conformed to this world, being transformed by the renewal of our mind. How do we come to have the mind of Christ? It is through knowing him, and you could say it is through personally knowing him, Not knowing about him through the church, but having personally placed your faith in him. So it should not be surprising for us to remember that one of the primary points of the upper room discourse that came right before this was that Christ Jesus was going away and that that was a good thing. Why? Because the Holy Spirit was going to come and would lead them into all truth. So here's how I would alter the personal Savior language. I would say that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that the way that one comes to know God and Christ is through one personally placing their faith in him not just going to church not just doing religious activities not just through like personal piety but only through belief in christ in reality scripture would say you're not even a member of the church you're not even a part of the body of christ unless you know him Unless you personally believe in him, even if you're a quote unquote member of the church, even though you prayed a prayer, or you walked an aisle or you, you know, signed a card at some point in time, if you don't know him, then you don't know him. This was something that John Knox fought against in his life. The Protestant church, uh, even today, sometimes gets this, like, rap of being overly focused on sin and behavior modification, um, which is a fair assessment sometimes, but the reality is that it is nothing compared to the medieval Catholic church. Not by any stretch of the imagination. Everything was about sin for the medieval Catholic church, and in that church, the teaching was basically that if you wanted to be saved, it came through your good works. Right it came through the church forgiving you and you doing the right things instead of the wrong things That's how somebody came to be saved what the protestant reformers basically said was that is not true at all Scripture clearly says it is through Christ alone That is how we come to know God that is the only way according to Jesus but if we aren't ke- careful like we can buy into that same kind of lie that somehow I need to be good enough in order to earn that knowledge, in order to earn that relationship with Him. But if I have the capacity to be good enough to know the Father, if I somehow have the capacity within me, if I can just muster it up to, to like enter into this intimate knowledge of the Father, then I have no need of a Savior. And Jesus' hour that has come is pointless. Why why would he die and come back from the dead? For what? If I have the ability to do it myself. Yet we know this is not the case. But don't miss this. Believing in Christ does not mean simply intellectually assenting to his reality. It means living as if his words are true. And John will basically say in his epistles, if you say you know him, if you say you have intimate knowledge of him, but your behavior has never changed, you don't know him. So it doesn't, your your salvation is not based on your behavior, but if you know him, then your life will change. It's inevitable. You cannot come into intimate knowledge of God Almighty and not be changed by him. So, So our salvation isn't based on us, it is based on Christ alone. And through placing our faith in him, we come into this intimate knowledge Over time, not all at once, it's progressive, right? But it is through him. If we know Christ, if we know the Father truly, you better believe that we are people who will chart change in our lives. We will be able to look back and say, I haven't done things perfectly, but I'm in a very different place than where I used to be. And my prayer is that that is your story. Jesus prays one thing for himself here, but even with his one prayer, it really isn't about him. Do you notice this? Father, glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Jesus prays that through his death and resurrection that he will be glorified which I think in this context means honored. I, I don't think this is about his glorification, which is that theological term we give to him ascending into heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father. I, I think at this point in time he means that, that they will see the reality of who I am, that I will be honored, and as a result, Father, you will be honored. So, so even in this prayer that he seemingly prays for himself, He's really praying that the Father will be glorified. Because ultimately, if Jesus is honored, then the Father will be honored. And that seems to be what Jesus is all about. Throughout all of this, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what the Father has told me to say. In all things, He is pointing back to the Father. And even in the Synoptic Gospels, Uh, we get a scene that we don't get in John, a scene that I think is later in this same evening where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane right before he's arrested, praying again with his disciples. And what does he pray? Father, not my will, but your will be done. It's basically what he's praying here, that you, God, that you will be glorified. And if we're looking at this as a model for our own prayer lives, what does it look like for us to pray in that way? We can be so focused on the things we need, the things we want, the things that we think should happen, that we completely forget that there is this sovereign, all-knowing, all-good and loving God. And he has given us his only son, and his son has modeled for us This prayer, both in the Lord's prayer, in this prayer, Father, not my will, but your will be done. Here on earth as it is in heaven, right? It reminds me of the beginning of uh, the Westminster Catechism. Um, The the Catechism asks this question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And it's the word enjoy. Enjoy that really sticks with me there, because that's a word that to me denotes personal experience. Like, in order for you to enjoy another person You kind of have to know another person. It's, it's a word that makes a ton of sense if God is not just a concept in a book or in a sermon, if he is your father who you know, and, and if Jesus isn't just like a wise sage sitting on a rock holding a baby lamb, right? But, but he is your brother who you know. I don't miss this because as we will see in the weeks to come, not only is this reality, Jesus has prayed for you and for me as well. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Let us pray. Lord, uh, we thank you, God, for the truth of your word, for your goodness and your grace, for the way that you make your truth known to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. And I pray, Lord, today that as we read your Holy Scripture That you would communicate your truth into our minds and our hearts. That, Father, we would awaken, if we have not already, to the beauty of who you are and what you have done for us. And that truly we would be a people who are changing into the, the men and women that you would have us be. God, give us your grace as we seek to love you and follow you. As hard as that is in this world, Father, help us. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.